Bonjour and welcome to the world of triangles. Hello and warmly welcome to the second podcast of uh, Non-Formality in Youth Debate featuring Gavin Titley from the National University of Ireland who gave an introductory lecture on resituating culture and situating diversity in the framework of a seminar bringing together youth researchers, youth policymakers and uh, youth work practitioners on the themes diversity, human rights and participation on May 11, 2006 in Strasbourg under the auspices of the Youth partnership between the European Commission and the Council of Europe. Welcome and enjoy. Excuse the ambient noise in the background uh, since this has been recorded uh, while giving the input. Obviously, there's you know people drinking water, people turning pages, people getting in and out of the room. All of this will probably be audible during the podcast. So we apologize for this and hope it will be inspiring nonetheless. And here comes Gavin. Enjoy. stand if you don't mind because otherwise various parts of the, the technological apparatus blind me to where to where different people are in the room um, I'm not sure uh, given what Alana unjustly said about her own vagueness I'm not sure that I'm going to do any more to bring clarity um, when I was thinking about talking about the notion of diversity and particularly as Alana mentioned trying to draw some sort of relationship between what we looked at in the Resituating Culture Seminar and what we want to look at, if you like, in situating diversity in relation to human rights and to participation. I was reminded of a discussion that I constantly or I have had at work quite a lot. I work in a media centre where there is both academics, theorists, sociologists and on the other hand practising journalists. And one of the things that the journalists constantly say to us, so there's a real us and them dynamic there despite our best efforts, is they constantly tell us that we would never be able to discuss these ideas on radio because whenever we would be asked a question about X, the first response of the academic is, well, it depends what you mean by X. So their point, if you like, is that once we've taken the pipe out of our mouths to, to, to dine, to take part in this kind of lowly public discussion, her point in a sense is that academics are often critically paralyzed by their relationship to discourse, by their own reflexivity, if you like that they're unable to suspend these reflexes and simply engage within the parameters of public debate in the way in which it is set up and with their knowledge of how it is set up. Now, she definitely has a point, this colleague of mine, but there's a wider point, which I think is the luxury that we have to look at here, which is that certain ideas and concepts that circulate, transnational concepts that circulate in our public spheres, can often be supersaturated with accents, with meanings, with connotations, to such an extent that they may obscure, ultimately, more than they communicate. So thankfully, what we have here in this research seminar is not the 90-second intensity of a radio interview, but instead what we have is a three-day research seminar which is charged, among other aims, with examining, as Alana pointed out, discourses of diversity, assessing them in the spirit of critique, and trying to look at 
What are the social understandings and responses that they involve? What we have in this seminar, I think, is the possibility to bring together, as we did in Resituation Culture, fine-grained consideration of what diversity means in different contexts. And what I want to look at in this opening discussion is, at the risk of frustrating my absent journalist, journalistic colleagues, is to argue that precisely this question, that it depends what you mean by diversity, is an obvious but also crucial endeavor in this context at this point in time. Because as we should see, what I want to look at is the idea that diversity is, as Peter and Alana have pointed out, both a fact, but it is also a social fact. And it is also an implicit value, particularly in the way in which it is constructed in the campaigns that we are looking at here. Diversity just is, it's argued, but we should also celebrate it, harness it, manage it, depending on what way the discourse works. Now, in a very obvious sense, as we have all concurred, diversity just is. But on the other hand, diversity never just is. It is, as Stuart Hall reminds us, something which must be made to mean. It is in the most rigorous sense of a discourse, something which offers us a hermeneutic framework, an interpretative framework for organizing human experiences of the social world and, most crucially for us, constituting knowledge of that social world. Now, if this makes it sound that after about 36 hours in Strasbourg, I'm about to set off for the wilder shores of French philosophy and theory, I would relax. It's a much more banal point that I'm actually trying to make. I bear in mind, or I remember, for example, a radio interview with an Irish guy of Nigerian, uh, Nigerian parentage who was born around the same time as myself in the early 1970s. And he was being asked about his experiences of racism in Ireland. And he had a lot to say about when he was growing up having a particular kind of racialized Irish experience. But one of the things he said which really caught my attention was he said that in the last five to seven years, what he has found unsettling is he has gone from being racialized Irish to a subject of diversity. In other words, it's not quite that people are chasing after him down the street, wanting to appreciate him and ask him to bring his food to international evenings. But what he was trying to hint at, if you like, is that in a funny way, the, this discourse of diversity that he experienced in Ireland as an integrative strategy was actually partly an experience of marginalization through inclusion. And I think that that's, while an anecdotal example, what he is suggesting is that the dominant discourses that shape practice in his place of work, for example, as he was talking about, means that he was positioned very differently, as he felt it, over time. So while it's an anecdotal point, it does make the point that the kind of discourse analysis, if you want, that we're engaged in here is actually centrally important, because discourse, while it may be constitutive, also has a lot, has an, an influence on experience that we can only access by looking at these kinds of, in far more systematic ways than my example, at looking at this kind of fine-grained experience of the social world and how people are marshaled to live within it. And I think understanding this form of living in and through diversity is a key aspect of our contribution to the many triangles that Peter presented earlier. And I think in this specific context, it's quite important, given that the partnership in cooperation with many youth organizations are embarking on a campaign where the notion of diversity is one which attempts to anchor a relationship with human rights and socio-political participation. So what I want to look at in this talk is to, in some ways, assess as much as we can at the start of something when everything is still very woolly, what is the sociological coherence of the notion of diversity as it is being deployed? And secondly, and very pragmatically, what is the political robustness of this discourse in relation to campaigning, 
and in relation to the kinds of arguments it is likely to encounter in very different societies. Now, there are admittedly very few things that a campaign uh, in the 21st century should take on board from communist campaigns at the beginning of the last century, but it could perhaps learn something from Valentin Volosinov and his Marxism and the Philosophy of Language, which is a book which still has quite a lot to say about the way in which we think about language and politics today. To boil down part of his argument, what he argues is that just as people speak a language and accent it, inflect words with a variety of sounds, Similarly, socio-political discourses accent words and concepts, ultimately striving to prefer one accent, to prefer one meaning over the others, until such a point when it, as it appears commonsensical, it appears natural, and in fact, it appears so natural that it entraps cautious academics on the radio who are constantly caught saying, well, it depends what you mean by. The reason they say that is because one sense of it has been naturalized over all others. Now, what this means is that diversity as a campaigning term must inevitably engage in what Volosinov called the struggle for meaning, the multi-accentual struggle for meaning, and it must do so in increasingly complex public spheres. Diversity could be regarded as an idea, uh, what the Irish linguist and cultural critic Michael Cronin calls an ideological franchise, by which he means it's a globally circulated notion. It's one that is translated in and out of English, but it is one which is franchised, in other words, particularized within different institutions, within different policy frameworks, it's harnessed and used in different ways, in different societies, and in different contexts. Now, as such, the idea of diversity has a very obvious attraction in what people increasingly called, called the divergent or entangled modernities of the Council of Europe's Europe, where a pan-European campaign must be capable both of overall coherence, but also must be flexible enough for national, regional, local particularization. The currency of diversity, many people have argued, rests on the fact that it appears to be confidently obvious, diversity just is, but it also has a helpful ambiguity. We can use it to mean very different things while apparently intending something shared and taken for granted. So part of the ambivalence and ambiguity of diversity is also its user-friendliness. The problem with this, of course, if we take up this notion of multi-accentuality and the ideological franchise, is that it's in the nature of a franchise that it must compete with different connotations and different discourses of diversity which are also active in given contexts and given societies. It's what Alana called the meanings which are out there, which a campaign must in and of itself engage with. We've been here before, and one of the reasons why Alana asked me to talk a little bit about resituating culture and relate it to this seminar is that similarly, the seminar itself, much more acutely than the seminar that we're looking, that we're participating in here, was born from a feeling that working with culture as a central concept was becoming sociologically incoherent and politically disabling to a certain extent. I won't try to rush through the very many uh, perspectives and critiques of culture which were offered in this book, but other just to point out that some of the things which, if you like, were common to many of the contributions, and we had very many different kinds of contributions from the sphere of youth sociology, from ethnography, from political science, from anthropology, and so forth. But many of the things which kept coming back was firstly the sense, quite obviously, has been argued by many people from Raymond Williams onwards, that culture only makes sense as a notion that historicizes itself. In other words, there's so many ubiquitous and tangled senses of the idea of culture that it only makes sense in some ways if you're also aware of what the person is not talking about 
when they are talking about culture itself. The second point, which came across very strongly in this seminar, following the analysis of somebody like Terry Eagleton, who has argued that the historical generation of the idea of culture has always involved a tension, he says, between the idea of making, in other words, culture as process, and the idea of being made, in other words, culture as some form of ethno-political identity. What many people argued in the seminar, in terms of very different contexts, was that very heavily politicized and strategic instrumental notions of culture as somehow the essentialized way of life of a people often implicitly and heavily linked to geopolitical territory and conflicts in relation to that, has become very central to European and global politics, particularly surrounding the securitization of immigration, post 9-11 rhetorics around civilization and compatibility, discourses of cultural imperialism, which in different ways have very much longer histories, but particularly as it came up in the seminar in relation to human rights and the relationship between universality and cultural relativism, but particularly where people focused much, if you like, of their critical energy was in terms of what Alana mentioned earlier, which is in some senses the meltdown of notions of multiculturalism, which have often been defined by a pendular swing from liberal notions of the sovereignty of the individual to more communitarian notions of recognition and group rights. And what many people argued in that sense is that culture has become a disputed and ultimately disabling horizon of experience in failing multiculturalisms, which are under attack both from the political right and left in different ways within different European societies. So the argument of resituating culture was obviously not one of correction. Let's either agree what this concept means or forget about it. But the idea of resituating was, if you like, the idea of promoting discursive literacy, the idea that Alana talked about about the necessity to constantly historicize and to contextualize and to be aware of what ideas carry with them, the traces that they bear when they're activated in different political discourses. Culture, as Mark Smith put it very well in this quotation at the end of the PowerPoint, is at one and the same time, he argues, a mark of distinction and of the assumptions upon which, upon which such distinctions are forged. In other words, it invites discursive inquiry because it only makes sense in terms of the boundaries which notions of culture attempt to explicitly and implicitly draw, it only makes sense, if you like, if there's an absent other that we are also able to deconstruct and to examine. So what links, first of all, these two seminars, I suppose, is a rather fanciful notion of discursive literacy. The idea in resituating culture, that culture is ultimately a performative notion, and that the work of research is often to historicize it, which, for example, Alana herself has made a major contribution uh, two, and also to contextualize it. And you'll see in the range of work which is included in the volume, and particularly later on in the afternoon in, introduce, excuse me, in introducing the panel on diversity, I'll make reference to some of the work, for example, of John Wrench, looking at discourses of diversity and culture within uh, organizations, corporations. So the work then that links these two seminars, I think, is this burden of historicization and contextualization. Now, if this is where we have, in a sense, come from, the question is, what does this suggest for diversity? What is the red line that Alana mentioned? I want to consider, in the time that's left to me, the discourse of diversity as it is generally taking shape, if you like, or in my very limited understanding of how it might be taking shape around the campaign and ancillary youth activities. Because as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, my work also in this house has been very much, if you like, in standing in a hybrid position of training and working in education, 
but also being very aware of the import, the organizational import of different kinds of discourses of culture, interculturalism, multiculturalism, and so forth. So what I want to do in the name of this fanciful idea of discursive literacy that I mentioned is to suggest some questions, some questions that could be, if you like, to a certain extent mobile, questions which could be asked in evaluating, critically evaluating the idea of diversity in action in different contexts. The first question, which I think is relevant, is what is and what is not diversity in a given context? If I take, for example, the operational notion of diversity as it appears in documents current, currently uh, shaping policy thinking in Ireland, documents produced by the National Consultative Committee on Racism and Interculturalism, diversity is, of course, in a very obvious sense, everything. It is, they argue, the interplay of ethnicity, gender, age, sexual orientation, religion, marital status, family status, disability, political persuasion, and so forth. In other words, very uncontroversial aspects of effective and ascribed identity, but particularly those aspects which have, in a variety of social contexts, obviously formed the basis of particular forms of discrimination. However, when we look at the opera, opera, operationalization uh, of diversity as a discourse in Ireland, in the website discussion, I tried to draw as the postcard said, as the postcard says, wouldn't it be boring if the world only had one ringtone? So uh, <laughs> Peter is illustrating that for us. In the internet discussion, I tried to give the example, again very much from my own area of work, of the development of something called diversity programming within the public service broadcaster in Ireland, RTE, as you know public service broadcasters in different ways within a variety of uh, public-private models across Europe are charged with the rather utopian idea of reflecting the diversity and also the commonality of the national community. And four or five years ago, the RTE, the public service broadcaster, decided to instigate a new department of programming which it called diversity programming. And one of the things that they did as part of this organizational restructuring, because it was both, if you like, a thematic restructuring and an organizational restructuring, is they decided to dissolve the Department of Religious Programming and to place it in the Department of Diversity Programming. Now, I won't go into the whole story, but as I tried to argue in the internet piece, this was met not just with outrage from the historically central Catholic Church in Ireland, but a Catholic Church, which was actually backed up by a whole range of other institutional religious groups in Ireland, who, it would seem, had very little, if you like, to gain or very little at stake in this particular debate. And what was interesting about the church's reaction, if you like, the fact that it was unwilling, as it sought, to be demoted from its own category of religious programming to the notion of diversity, is precisely, there were budgetary issues as well, but precisely because it saw it as that. It saw it as a downgrade. It saw it as, if you like, a diminution of its status. And it principally saw this because diversity within the public service broadcaster operates as a euphemism for ethnic minorities, particularly ethnic minorities in relation to contemporary migration in Ireland over the past 10 years or so. So diversity, while on the one hand appears in policy documents as a state of being that encompasses all of us in our diversity, is a euphemism within this institution for sociocultural change, particularly in relation to migration. And what the church's reaction lays bare, of course, is the fact 
the relationships of power that exist between minorities and majorities, these relationships of power exist between those who are dominantly recognized as being diverse and those who sit comfortably in the center and recognize diversity. In other words, what the church, the logic of the Catholic Church and the logic of the public service broadcaster, and then once again reshaping its departments subsequently, is that it sees diversity as a euphemism for the remaking of the problems which sit at the heart of liberal recognition multiculturalism. Whereas the journalist Gary Young put it so well, some identities are constantly under scrutiny, that is the people who are institutionally seen as diverse, while others coast by with eternal presumption. In this instance, it is the church, if you like, holding on to a notion of presumption and resisting the idea that it can be leveled out as it sees it into something called diversity. So in asking, first of all, what is not diversity in any given context, we can, I think, deconstruct a notion or de uh, deconstruct a discourse of diversity to see, as Alana pointed out, in terms of this lineage of diversity, that's something that John Wrench writes about in Resituating Culture, as diversity which comes from, if you like, is built on a sort of a, a set of strata, historical strata of different kinds of campaigns. We can work out whether diversity is simply a euphemism for what has already been proven not to work, you like, or whether it actually has some form of transformative potential, whether it has something different to say. Second question that I think we could ask is how does a given discourse of diversity relate to principles and instruments of anti-discrimination? Here again, I will content myself, given the nature of this kind of talk, with being more or less anecdotal. The poet and musician Benjamin Zephaniah, who is British of, of Jamaican parentage, had a close relative who died in police custody in the United Kingdom a few years ago. And having subsequently visited the station in which his cousin or his nephew, I'm not sure which it was, died, he noted the irony of the fact that in the police station there was a poster of him, Benjamin Zephaniah, who at that moment in time was the face of cultural diversity for the British Council. He was, he was a representative and ambassador for British Council's cultural diversity events. Now, this brought to mind, in when Zephaniah was talking about this, something which he had previously commented on, which is, as he saw it, the relationship in terms of thinking about multiculturalism between working on attitudes and working on behavior. And Zephaniah, with his customary, pithy, almost poetic style, put it very nicely when he said, if I am stopped on the street to be searched by a police officer, I don't care if he's been on holidays to Jamaica. I don't care if he likes reggae. All I care about is whether or not he is aware that if he infringes my rights, that there is a statutory process within which he will then be uh, investigated and convicted. In other words, what Zephaniah is trying to say is that in the relationship between behavior and attitudes, an appreciation of diversity, being for diversity, celebrating diversity, involves, if you like, educationally, socially, a welcome attempt to develop forms of cultural capital. But these are forms of cultural capital which must be built on solid principles and mechanisms of anti-discrimination, as Karin was talking about in the opening this morning. But a point which comes across in a lot of different forms of research about how discourses of diversity are bedded in within institutions, particularly in the sphere of diversity management within business, is that a discourse of diversity can, on the one hand, enhance public awareness and support for anti-discrimination mechanisms and measures, or it can weaken it by suggesting that the appreciation of cultural diversity in and of itself is a welcome and attainable goal and state of being. 
John Wrench, who I've mentioned a number of times at this point, in his analysis of diversity management practices in the old European Union, argues that diversity management in many businesses may build educational strategies and institutional initiatives on a solid basis of anti-discrimination policy, but it may also threaten anti-discrimination by substituting cultural diversity initiatives deemed to be non-threatening, and I'll come back to this point of non-threatening in a minute, for solid commitments to equal opportunities and anti-discrimination policies. So for Wrench and others, to try to sum up his point, a shift to celebrating diversity while welcome if it is bedded on particular forms of principle and process, may also offer hostages to fortune if it simply regards diversity as a resource which in and of itself presents itself socially as being worthwhile and something which can be built on. Wrench and other researchers make two points. And this is an interesting point because it brings together the relationship, first of all, between campaigning rhetoric and the research world. Diversity as a resource is a notion which is often heard as a, as a, as a, a, a laudable idea. But the point that Wrench makes is that diversity as a resource is also an empirical claim. In other words, within given institutions, you can actually research, depending on what you define uh, diversity to be, depending on what you define a resource to be, you can actually research whether diversity can be seen as a, a, a resource, in other words, as a richness, as a wealth that in har being harnessed contributes, to use the phrase, added value to that particular context. But what many researchers have argued is that actually, depending again on the way in which the research is set up, research on the relationship between diversity and resource or wealth is actually hugely ambivalent. It depends very much on how you value teams, for example. It depends how you value the relationship between process and output and so forth. I won't sp uh, spend more time talking about that. But the second point he makes, which is a rather more macro point, is that as he points out in research which he had done up until the late 1990s, labour shortages in Europe were one of the major stimuli in the late 1990s for a turn to diversity management. And this is precisely what he has in mind when people talk about the idea of a hostage to fortune. If you substitute, as Wrench puts it, a moral case, in other words a principled case, for a business case to any great extent, what you do of course is you run the risk that as labour shortages fluctuate in different sectors and different regions over time, that at a certain point in time there is no diversity as resource case to be made because manifestly it is no longer the case and is also subject to a whole range of political pressures. The third question which we could ask of discourses of, the, of, of diversity is does a discourse of diversity favour memory or does it favour forgetting? And this is where I come back to the idea of that, 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 that John, Wrench, John Wrench's point about the non-threatening appeal of diversity management. Personally, as an educator, I've been involved in many initiatives where what, when I started, was called anti-racism work, has been rebranded as being for cultural diversity, with the explanation that if something sounds too aggressive, if it's, if you like, not constructive, if it's against something, then in and of itself it doesn't work. Now, this brings to mind, for example, rather absurd situations where in the 1970s you would have found the campaign for nuclear disarmament campaigning for human existence rather than against nuclear weapons. It's a particular kind of, of logic which you either buy or you don't. However, there's more, I think, at stake in the way in which anti-racism work and anti-racism thinking has been sublimated into particular discourses of, of diversity. 
The current campaign, to a certain extent, reflects this. It very much markets itself, in my understanding, as a successor to the campaign which was against racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and intolerance, and argues that it is not anymore a negative fighting campaign, but it is a positive, constructive campaign, which is all well and good to a certain extent. But within that, there must be an awareness of what that move means. If we could have the other slide. This is a quotation from uh, uh, what Maxime showed us earlier, uh, the recent, or one of the recent editions of Youth Opinion. And my wish here is not to pick on one particular quotation and argue that it is representative, or to pick on one particular pronouncement, but rather, again, to argue that when we are working in this kind of area, the way in which we construct arguments means that we activate latent notions which exist within different discourses and practices of anti-racism, diversity management, and so forth over time. And what we have in this quotation, which very, again, laudably argues that the celebration of diversity as an added value is crucial today in a Europe which is a diverse continent, learning more about each other is an enriching experience that usually leads someone to a greater sensitivity and understanding of others. That is why diversity is essential to ensure Europe's cohesion. Well, I mean, it is in one sense, of course, but in terms, again, of how we think about campaigning, this is dependent to a large extent on what Karl Popper most memorably called a bucket theory of mind. In other words, that if you get filled up with enough of the right stuff, that the right stuff then guides your behaviors. In other words, it depends on a notion of anti-racism, a culturalization of anti-racism that sees racism as, if you like, a pathological uh, form of ignorance and deviance in the individual themselves, rather than something which changes in terms of the organization of power within society over time. It argues, in a sense, that because racism has become culturalized, that the remedy to racism is cultural itself. But here again, we come back to Benjamin Zephaniah's point, which it is not so much working on attitudes as a foundational notion, but working instead on regulating behaviors and then attitudes in relation to that. But crucially, and this is my point about memory and forgetting, and it relates very much to what Peter said and what Alana said earlier, is that in sublimating anti-racism to a wider panoply of diversity, which on the one hand may have the value of emphasizing the intersectionality of different kinds of prejudice and discrimination, but on the other hand, it may actually result in the ways in which racism, which is historically generated and changing, the experiences and histories of racism which exist in our society get widened out to generalized notions of discriminate, leveled out rather, to generalized ideas of prejudice, discrimination, and diversity. And it is precisely the memory of the generation of how these forms of racism exist which is important in trying to combat them, not saying that it is all part of a panoply of ignorance. And here is where I'd like to be slightly controversial. Campaigns and other operational discourses of diversity if they are devoid of this form of memory, which means, in a sense, that they're devoid of real critiques of power and privilege and how they work in socio-political contexts over time, run the risk of becoming what the American anthropologist Thomas de Zengatita calls identity politics. And what he doesn't have in mind here is the common notion of identity politics as something which involves politics within, if you like, a relationship of recognition. What he means by identity politics is that if, excuse me, if we are engaged in politics that do not have within them any vision of transformation or are not harnessed to a project of transformation, what the politics becomes about is about the performance of the identities that those are involved in the politics. That's what he means by identity politics. 
to be crude, it becomes a macro version of some of my best friends are black or some of my best friends are gay or whatever it might be. If we could go back to the questions, Andreas, the final question which I'd like to posit is the question which has been raised particularly in relation to campaigning and raised by Alana, is whether a discourse of diversity is politically robust in relation to prevailing positions and arguments in a given public sphere. Again, I could try, uh, and, and, and here's where I'll abuse my professional involvement in the media, to quote a television program. There is a fabulous uh, satirical British television program called The Office, which deals with a, a bunch of lost souls who are uh, creating some form of office stationery somewhere. Uh, it's never really specified what they do. But the, in a sense, the, 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 the satire is very much about sort of neoliberal vacuity, the fact that these people are living in an institutional context where they're constantly given a rhetoric for what they do, while at the same time their work is entirely banal, and it just looks at how people, in a sense, survive. And there's a classic uh, episode where the staff undergo a diversity training. And then it's a, it's a mockumentary, so it's, a, it's meant to be a fly-on-the-wall documentary. And it interviews some of the different characters afterwards. And one of the characters, Gareth, who's a kind of a, a gormless office boy, uh, he's pretending to be very serious. And he says, yeah, he said, you know, I, I've learned a lot from this training. And I realized that um, my father, you know, he, he says all the wrong things. And that's not acceptable anymore. So my father, uh, he talks about fairies instead of gays. He talks about cripples instead of the disabled. And he talks about darkies instead of coloreds. The satire, of course, in that last juxtaposition of darkies and coloreds is that what is often derided as political correctness could better be seen as orthodoxies of performance, orthodoxies of presentation that people in different institutional contexts are trained and marshaled to accept. But if they haven't been part of the critical process that establishes why these changes in presentation are necessary and are part of something wider and more important, then in a sense, they simply become rigid, ossified rules for how to talk, which are not in any way embedded in anything. And I give this example because when it comes to campaigning and when it comes to campaigning around these kinds of ideas, it raises what is ultimately a pragmatic concern. In agitating for diversity and against discrimination, we have to be sure that we are giving training people and offering young people discourses that are robust, in other words, discourses which in their given political context are already interpreted and will be reinterpreted, may be deployed against them, may be countermanded, may be subverted, and are mutating all the time anyway. My experience from a piece of research that myself and Yale carried out in relation to a long-term training course on intercultural education where people over a period of a year and some residential seminars were asked to, to develop intercultural projects and to evaluate them over time. One of the things that we were interested in was the, what many people call culture talk, the idea that people who come from very diverse backgrounds and then work through certain, if you like, educational languages around interculturalism, around diversity and so forth, experience something that you could call discursive alienation. In other words, as Alana put it, they don't have ownership of a particular kind of language. They're attempting to fill it with meaning. But in a funny kind of way, it prevents them from translating their experience into something which can be communicated in an international seminar to others who are there. And part, of course, of the power relationship between institutional discourse and the, if you like, individual participants is that very often what we found when we talked and interviewed different participants 
is that they found a certain anxiety that they could not make their reality, if you like, fit the official discourse, rather than the fact, if you like, of feeling the freedom to question whether this discourse was something which was useful to them or not. Now, of course, there's much that non-formal education and training can do to facilitate this kind of process of critical translation, whereby people take ideas which are very much related to institutional priorities, to funding and so forth, and translate them into something which is useful for themselves. But a wider question and a wider concern is does the discourse of diversity as it is, cons as it is currently evolving put campaigners in a difficult, difficult position of translation? In other words, if diversity is everything and we are for it, how can we hope to engage in public spheres where diversity is already loaded with these different accents that I was talking about in opening? Now again, I'll just give a couple examples of this. In the introduction to Resituating Culture, I talk about the way in which far-right parties uh, in Europe, many of them have policy papers on cultural diversity. They have policy papers on managing cultural diversity. Now clearly, their notion of management might be very different uh, and might be slightly more uh, extreme, shall we say. Uh, than our ideas of what managing diversity might involve. But again, what is important, and not to be too pointy-headed about it, is what they have done in doing this is they have, if you like, they have accepted, they have made the campaigner accept a certain practice of identification. We are already working with a culturalized notion of diversity, where within this political rhetoric, diversity and cultural diversity can be valued but it is separated out from wider political economic concerns. And it is, of course, the relationship between those which is crucial when it comes to the uh, discussions of human rights and anti-discrimination. Furthermore, and this is something which I can only really talk about in the context that I know, but the post 9-11 and war on terror securitization of migration, which I know that Sophia will talk about during the seminar, and the racialization of terror suspects in Europe, has meant that there's a curious shift in the, in the landscape in terms of the public sphere. You have a newly resurgent populist right, and you have what Paul Gilroy calls the new tough left, who are essentially middle-aged men who have got very sick of having to deal with the complexity of an oppositional transformative politics, and therefore have just decided that they will say, uh, they will say what the right has been saying. But there are many people who are lining up to argue that diversity is in and of itself suspicious. So it is not by any manner of means a foundational principle that people just like diversity and then we go from there. There are arguments in Britain and Ireland and elsewhere, for example, that diversity weakens social cohesion, that diversity is something which threatens civic society or civic cohesion, that it is a threat to citizenship and so forth. Spurious arguments, as we will see in some of the papers that will be presented here, but they're ones that demand a politically robust response. And if I can return for a moment to the idea of anti-racism as being too aggressive. This once again is an example whereby a reactionary discourse has actually, if you like, been wholesale, um, wholesale accepted by the people who are themselves putatively anti-racist. In other words, if you look at where the discourse that anti-racism is too aggressive comes from, it comes particularly from the Clinton era US, it comes from Australia under the premiership of John Howard, it's currently being deployed in Ireland by right-wing commentators who, as a shorthand for any of the things that we're talking about here, talk about the equality and diversity industry, and note a very interesting use of the word industry there. And what they are arguing is that anti-racism is in and of itself racist because it involves labeling the common folk, who like Gareth in the office, just aren't too au fait with this new fancy language, but it involves labeling common folk as racist and is nothing more ultimately than a discourse and self-satisfying practice of social elites. 
Now, of course, to some extent, this may be true. But what is it very interesting is that it is, again, a very privileged minority that within the societies that I know who are arguing this, but their logic has been taken wholesale into the very strategies which are meant to counter them. And this is what I mean by discursive literacy. We cannot allow for that kind of inoculation. In conclusion, what I have tried to do here is simply to give some vignettes, all of which are based on my own perspectives, of different contexts and experiences. But perhaps it's enough to suggest that diversity, while it is, of course, a positive idea, is far from automatically suggestive of any kind of transformative politics in relation to human rights and anti-discrimination. Because how it engages with questions of power, privilege, and historical formation is quite ambivalent, to be honest. We started with questions of sociological coherence and political possibility. And I'll end with two examples that I've come across recently, which I see to be in some ways legacies from the approach of resituating culture, and not that the people involved were influenced by them, but if you like, related thinking. And they also suggest something about the position of research in these kinds of debates. Paul Gilroy, in his recent book, After Empire, uh, Conviviality and Melancholia, argues that what is necessary, ultimately socially, is ways of transcending what he calls race thinking. And one of the ways that he argues, or one of the things he argues that often passes under the radar of initiatives in relation to cultural diversity or anti-racism, is what he calls conviviality. In other words, conviviality is the everyday business of living together. It is commonality and solidarity, which often evades categorizations of cultural difference or identity which operate within institutional programs. What Gilroy in this example is talking about is he's talking about the release of British prisoners from Guantanamo Bay. And Gilroy and also Tariq Ali have commented very interestingly on the fact that if you consider what one of the most vaunted PR points in relation to Guantanamo has been over the last few years is not what has happened to the human rights and potential participation of these people who both physically, legally, and symbolically have been vanished away. What has been vaunted by the US government is the fact that these people have been given culturally appropriate meals. In other words, this is, Gilroy would argue, this is managing diversity in a situation which has been vanished from human rights and from uh, anti-discrimination. And what Gilroy argues as an example of conviviality is that the, 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 there was an interview, as he points out, with the released prisoners when they came back to Britain in a newspaper. And they, 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 they emphasized that one of the things that kept them going when they were in Guantanamo was their craving for Highland short, uh, shortbread biscuits, which are a particular kind of biscuit which I personally associate with my grandmother. They're, they're very, uh, I, I like them myself too, I should hasten to add. But what Gilroy, the point he's making, is that on the one hand, diversity management within this context offers people culturally appropriate and sensitive foods, yet what they really actually want is the kind of biscuit that they grew up with because they are not defined by the notion of culture and hence cultural sensitivity operating in Guantanamo or elsewhere, but they are subjects, he argues, of conviviality, of the messy living together, which often evades the kind of programmatic categories that we use. So in other words, a role for research is to emphasize constantly this fine grain of conviviality. The second and final point that I would like to make is in relation to somebody, and we should really talk about somebody who is both very intimate with Strasbourg, Francis Rosenthal, and also very intimate with the Council of Europe, and his concept of vulnerability, which I also think has a lot to say about how we understand diversity. 
This is a reasonably provocative quotation, I would imagine, to use in this context. Roseanne Thiel was writing before the recent collective uh, madness that surrounded the cartoons in Denmark. But what he argues is that European humanism, he says, is a narcissistic paradox, an intellectual betrayal, a kind of updated placebo to be packed in the first aid kit of belated Euro boy and girl scouts. On the other hand, he argues, I would like to venture the thought that the consciousness of such a paradox, of the actual gap between a European dream and European realities, might be the best product of a humanistic intuition. In other words, what he's arguing is that when it comes to something like diversity, we must be constantly aware that however diversity was regarded as a social fact in European history, it has more likely been something which has been perceived as a threat and which has been the subject of violence rather than the subject of celebration. And if it is not embedded in these histories of violence and subjugation and marginalization, then it has lost the very kind of memory that Alana and Peter were talking about. So that is the second function that I see, or relationship between resituating culture and this seminar, which is the function of research as a memory. Thank you very much. <laughs>